Thanks, guys. Grateful, so profound, uh, the worship. Can we give another hand of just expression of gratitude? It's so good when people are using their gifts in a way that builds us up and encourages us, and we are built up and encouraged, pointed to Christ. Thank you very much. Uh, as we begin tonight, the first thing I want to do, if we could show this first slide here, I want to just let you know a couple of books that are resources available for you uh, that I've written, and a couple more tomorrow morning I'll talk about. The Colors of Hope is a book entirely about one verse of the Bible, Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? Really, it's not that hard, but it is hard. Three things. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. My favorite testimony from somebody who read that book is someone read it and said, it's the first time I'd ever learned that Jesus is for stuff. All I heard in my church growing up was what Jesus was against, that God hates this and God hates that. And so if you're curious about uh, the relationship of social justice and uh, like our church has a homeless shelter and a food bank and a community meal and this thing that we do, with homeless folks and a refugee resettlement thing. If you're curious about the relationship of that kind of ministry to Jesus, this would be a good book for you. The other book's called The Map is Not the Journey. In uh, 2014, my wife and I uh, were gifted a sabbatical three months off from the church, and we used that time to hike uh, through the Alps. We started in Italy, and we'd hike hut to hut every night. Uh, start Italy to Austria, Austria to Germany, uh, journey, journey to Switzerland, back to Austria. And this book is about the lessons learned on that hike. My intent was to hike the Pacific Crest Trail alone because uh, I'm a pastor and I was sick of people and I just want to get away and, you know, be my... I, seriously, I did. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, I was like, I don't want to see anyone for like three months. And then uh, my best friend died in Austria in a paragliding accident and the school where I teach in Austria asked me to come and help out a little. And then... I said, well, as long as I'm there, I'll hike in the Alps instead. And then suddenly my wife got interested too, oddly, because it's not backpacking. You stay in a hut every night and someone feeds you. And then my wife was like, I'll go. <laughs> so we went together and we learned a lot. Uh, my favorite testimony from this book is, uh, it, the book was gifted to a CEO who was ready to quit his job. And he read it and he said that uh, it restored his sense of calling and identity in Christ. So anybody who's tired, that's a good book. So those are two books available. And then let's go on now to what we're talking about. Tonight, session two, Loss of Identity in Christ is what we want to talk about. Let me just read the verses that are appropriate and then pray and I'll explain why that slide is cogent to our discussion this evening. Uh, Hebrews 2, this is uh, what we're putting our focus on at the beginning here. Uh, God says regarding Christ, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to Christ, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But right now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him. Let's pray. Father, uh, this book of Hebrews is such a gift for this moment in history. Because if ever we could say we don't see everything subject to your reign, it's this moment. I suppose it's been every moment, but we're so mindful right now of all the brokenness in our world. And if we're honest, to some extent, the brokenness in our own hearts, our own lives. So would you enable us tonight to see that in the midst of the brokenness, we can appropriate nothing less than the wholeness of the risen Jesus and allow you to express life through us as we live into our calling. May that be each of our story in increasing measure. As a result of our time tonight, may your Holy Spirit teach us. In Christ's name we pray. Uh, amen. So that slide is taken from uh, where we live. And in the foreground is some snow that's groomed. And then down in the, in the, in the background there is you see that fog. And I live actually in that fog. I live in that fog. Uh, my wife and I had purchased a house years ago and we were renting it to skiers. We did it uh, in, with an eye toward retirement. It's 60 miles east of Seattle, 55 actually. Uh, but uh, we'd rent it out to skiers and then uh, our criteria in buying a house was it had to have a mother-in-law apartment so that we could use it too, right? And so we're renting the big part uh, and then I'd go up there and you know write and ski and we'd enjoy it. And then my literal mother-in-law in 2014 got sick and needed to move in with one of her children. And uh, my 
wife has three older brothers, but none of them were able to take her. And it fell to us for my mother-in-law, who's now 95. And by the way, 95 has her own Instagram account, her own Facebook account, and doesn't just read, but posts stuff at 95. She's posting stuff. It's amazing. Anyway, she needed to move in with us, and uh, our house in Seattle was too small, so I checked with the board, and we, we, moved, uh, we moved east, and that's the way it is. Uh, so the, the bonus, the, the hassle is the commute, the bonus is the skiing, right? And so on this particular morning, I, I, part of my hobby is uphill skiing. It's called ski touring. Some of you may do it. Anybody do it in here? We put skins on your skis, you go up, and then you, then you take the skins off, and you lock the heel down, you ski down. It's a great workout. So I got up this morning, and I knew it snowed overnight. I was like, I'm going to go. This was last year in November. I'm going to go. It was, a, it was my first day out. The slopes hadn't opened yet, but they were about to open because they'd groomed them. I didn't know that at the time. So I get up, I go, and then I flip an outside light on, and it's foggy. I knew it had snowed, and I was like, I really want to go, but then I flip the light on, it's foggy, and I'm like this, nah, forget it. I hate this kind of weather. This is Seattle weather. I don't like it. I want sun. I'm not going to go. And then I started thinking, what if it's actually sunny just above me? What a tragedy it would be to stay home and whine about it when actually it could be sunny. So I said, okay, I take a risk here, and I'm going to go anyway. So, you know, put all the snow gear on and get to the hill. It's foggy at the bottom. And you start hiking up, and within... 150 vertical, you're above the fog, and the sun rises, and you're like this, God is good, right? It's like amazing, and then I skied down, and I went on immediately, I wrote in my journal, and I was like this, how often in life does the fog of our circumstances prevent us from living into our calling? Because the circumstances kind of... They settle in like fog. And you, so who's, who's from the valley in here? I grew up in Fresno. So I know fog. And if you're on the coast, you know fog too. We all know fog. Fog is depressing. Give me rain. Give me sun. Give me snow. Don't give me fog. I don't want fog, right? Because you can't see anything. And it just kind of sucks the life out of you, right? So this, in this metaphor, I go, how often have, have the circumstances of my life become the fog and then I've said, you know what, I'm not going. So it's very important here that we learn to kind of rise above the fog of our circumstances. And that is challenging. I will say it at the outset. And the scriptures will name for us the challenge tonight. So, so the challenge is found in what I just read, chapter 2, verse 8b into 9. We're to, this is what we're told. All things are subject to Christ. Victory's been won. We're complete in Christ. Every enemy's been conquered. Christ is seated. We heard it this morning. It is finished. We heard it last night. Christ is risen. So we sing songs. We just sang one. You are good. You are good. You are good to me. Uh, we sang songs about victory in Jesus. And, and we shout sometimes. We go to stadiums. And it's like, God is good over here. And then the, the other side all the time and back and forth like an echo, you know? And we, like, we do that and all of this happens because it's true. Christ has won the victory. And then we read this, Hebrews 2, 8b, but right now we do not yet see all things subject to him. That's the fog. Huh. Really important. Because the reality is that if I look at the news and I don't care where, CNN MSNBC, CBS, BS, if that's a station, I don't know, <laughs> ABC, Fox, it's all depressing. It's all depressing. It all incites anger. And I don't even have to watch the news. I know what's going on. Daily shootings, infidelity, broken marriages, marriages that don't end in divorce in my church, but that are so toxic that children become cynical enough that they determine never to marry. 
uh, secret and not secret addictions that are destroying families, the highest percentage right now at this moment, the highest percentage of humanity ever having refugee status, it's racism, it's the rage in response to racism, it's, it's a rage that wants revenge, not reconciliation. It's the reality that we still live in a fallen world. It's cells mutating and cancer happening. In the many years that I've been a pastor, I've officiated the funeral of a two-year-old whose mom uh, took her son to the, with her to the hospital. The mom was having a minor procedure. The son started playing with a hospital bed, and they go up and down, and the bed crushed his skull, and he died. And I, I did the funeral. <laughs> Another man backing out of his driveway to go to work ran over uh, his four-year-old daughter and killed her. A husband committed suicide. A couple uh, could never have children. A family lost every penny. A woman left her husband for another woman. That's my world. A guy reads this book, Lust-Free Living, and throws it against the wall and says, this isn't for me, and walks out on his marriage. So yeah, is it finished? Yes. Has Jesus won the victory? Yes. But we do not yet see all things subject to him. And here's the deal, guys. <laughs> if we allow the fog to govern our living and our choices, then we will misrepresent Christ, we'll drift away, and we, we won't live into the life for which we're created. So, so the text thankfully goes on. We don't yet see all things subject to him, but we do see him. And here's my question right now. Do we? <laughs> do we see him? Oh, yeah, we see him. We're here. Yeah, we see him. We have Bibles. Here's the thing. Let me just talk once again to remind us that there's a great problem of not seeing Jesus for who Jesus really is. We've already seen this challenge of drifting away. If we're passive in our faith, we lose discernment. If we, if we lose discernment, we adopt a caricature Jesus as the real thing. You can go online and you can see little bobbleheads of Jesus doing all kinds of stuff, right? There's, there's ski Jesus, right? And like he's double black diamond. He's the best. There's baseball Jesus. There's bowling Jesus. There's golf Jesus. There's uh, chef Jesus. Pick your Jesus, right? And then, you know, if you take that to its unhealthy extreme, there's a Republican Jesus, there's a Democrat Jesus, there's an environmental Jesus, there's a manly man Jesus, there's a, there's a marine Jesus. And we slip into this, this Jesus who asks little of us because it's a Jesus who reinforces mostly who we already are, and we feel really good about this Jesus. And we love this Jesus and worship this Jesus and follow this Jesus, but hello, we're not being transformed. Because that Jesus is a Jesus of our making, a Jesus made in our image, and that's called idolatry. So we can't do that. We have to allow Jesus to critique us so that we repent and enjoy ongoing transformation. And this problem of creating a Jesus in our image is what got Jesus ultimately executed. And it, that, that problem was with Jesus from day one of his ministry until he said it is finished on the cross. Day one, Luke 4 uh, verse 22, you know, he gets up and he quotes out of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and proclaim deliverance to the captives and give sight to the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf, all this stuff. And then he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a, it's a synagogue. They're all Jewish. And they're like, that. yeah, man, we love this guy. That's my paraphrase, but it's there. You can read it, right? Yeah, we love Jesus. This is Jesus. Man, Messiah's come. And then he says, hey, can I remind you <laughs> that in the Old Testament, uh, lots of widows were lacking oil, but it was that Gentile widow whose container was filled all the time. And there were a lot of lepers, but it was Naaman the Syrian <laughs> who was miraculously healed. And Jesus kind of goes on, and what he's, what he's saying here to an exclusive group of people who've lost sight of their calling to shine as light to bless others is, look, 
If you're going to follow me as Messiah, you're going to follow me out of the synagogue and into the streets so that you will be the first to cross social divides and bring the great message of reconciliation that God loves all people, all nations, all skin color, all economic classes. I'm there for everyone. And it says at that moment immediately, what did they try and do? Does anyone know? They ran him out onto a hill and they picked up rocks and they were going to kill him. And he escaped because it wasn't his hour. Like we love Jesus until Jesus starts critiquing our nationalism in that particular case. And then, you know, go through his whole ministry. John 11 is the end of his public ministry. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Like that's a pretty good miracle, right? (laughs) Raising someone from the dead, you know, and he'd been dead three. He'd been dead three days. and, And in fact, when you read the story, you realize that he waited to go to see Lazarus until not just he was mostly dead, but good and dead, right? Like he waited on purpose. And then, you know the story, he raised him the dead. And then it says, everyone is following Jesus. So then the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers, the kind of the religious, the seminarians, I say, you know, they all got together. Yes, what, what should we do about this guy? Look at he's healed lepers, and and he's given sight to the blind. He just gave sight to the blind in John chapter nine, and and, and he, he you know he's crossed all these social divides, and then you know he he's he's offered forgiveness of sins, and now he's raised a man from the dead. What should we do? And and Caiaphas, the kind of the head elder, what does he say? Well, it's obvious what we should do. Kill him. Like, how is that obvious, right? (laughs) This is a pretty good guy. Here's why it's obvious. Because this, like, if I follow this Jesus, watch this. My world will implode. Caiaphas. My world. Like, the industry of my religious system will be undone. So I will choose to save my life. And in saving my life, will what? Lose it. And every time we follow Jesus of our own making and refuse to follow the Jesus who calls us to repentance and transformation, every time we do that, it's like we're putting Jesus to death again because we're saying, no, I don't want that transformation. It's too scary. It's too risky. Well, we got to see that Jesus. And the way that we see that Jesus is by seeing Jesus as a suffering servant. Seeing the suffering servant changes our paradigm. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 9. We do see him, Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then... Uh, Over in chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 8, on this theme of suffering, we read this. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. And the suffering, we read in verse 9 of Hebrews 5, it was the suffering that made him perfect. He became perfect. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school and stuff, you're like this. Wait a minute. What do you mean? Jesus wasn't perfect? Well... I'm just reading my Bible. It says, he learned obedience and was made perfect. It's right there. So let's let's think this through together, right? Jesus needed perfecting. Did you know that? Was he sinless? Yes. Was he completely committed to doing the will of God? Yes. Did he do the will of God perfectly? Yes. Was every response in his life from the beginning until his last breath a reflection of God's will? Yes. Well, in what sense then did Jesus need perfecting? What could he possibly need to do that would make him more than he already was? Because it seemed like there's nothing lacking. Here's the deal. Jesus is eternal, but prior to taking up human form, the desires of Jesus and the desires of God the Father were always exactly the same. Always. They created the universe together. Read Job. They enjoyed perfect fellowship with each other without any conflict of will. And then Jesus empties himself of the prerogatives of divinity, Philippians chapter 2, takes on the form of a man, takes on the, and then he's obedient, obedient to the point of death, even what? 
death at a cross. Now that word obedience is important because when we go to the garden, Matthew 26, the garden of Gethsemane, what do we see? Jesus going down in the garden, praying, sweating drops of blood, and what does Jesus say? Father, if it's possible, let this cup, what? Pass from me, and then, watch this, then he says, but not my will, but yours. Whoa! Jesus had a will, and it wasn't the will of God in that moment. Are you with me? So Jesus had a will that was not the will of God. He said, not my will. I'm relinquishing my will to the higher calling of your will. So what Jesus needed to do in order to fulfill the will of the Father was die to his own will. And when he died to his own will, that is the essence of suffering. So while the moment in the garden was near the climax of his suffering, via choosing God's will over his own will, I want to tell you, that was not the, the first or only time that Jesus' suffering was occurring in this way, this conflict of wills. How do I know that? Because when you read through the Gospel of John, if you do a word search for this simple phrase, not my own, it shows up over and over and over again in the, in the Gospel of John. Jesus saying, not my own. What's he saying? My teaching is not my own. It comes from the Father. My judgment is on my own. It comes from the Father. My works, they're not my works. They're the works of the Father, expressing the Father's will and life through me. My will, it's not my will. It's the will of the Father. My time, no, it's not my time. It's, it's, he says, my hour's not yet come. It's, it's the will of the Father. It's the Father's timing. It's the Father's work. It's the Father's words. It's the Father's judgment. It's the Father's works. Boom, it's the Father's life. So, so I live, I, Jesus, live as a vessel on this earth whose sole purpose is to express the will of the Father. So I live not just in the garden saying, not my will. I live every day saying, it's not my life, it's yours. God, express your life through me because I'm available to you to do whatever you want. And if you want me to live to be 120, I'll live to be 120. And if you want me to die tomorrow, I'll die tomorrow. But it's not my will, it's yours. If you want me single, I'll be single. If you want me married, I'll be married. If you want me living in San Diego, I'll go there. If you want me in South Africa, I'll go there. Not my will, not my vocation, not my money, not my sexual autonomy, not my life. It's not my life, it's the Father's. That's what Jesus said. But then he ups the ante post-resurrection Because Jesus in John 21 says to his disciples, watch this, as the Father has sent me, now what? So send I you. Wow. What does that mean? Jesus is saying to us tonight, (laughs) I'm asking you to live in relation with me, Jesus, in the same way that I, Jesus, lived in relation with the Father. So that even as the Father was delighted to express his character through me, Jesus, I, Jesus, now will find the delight of expressing my life through you. Go in my name. But if you're going in my name, recognize you have relinquished everything to me. It's not your will, it's mine. It's not your money, it's mine. It's not your time tomorrow at one when football's on. It's mine. (laughs) And if you want to watch football and it's okay with me, then it's fine, enjoy it. But it's, listen, your life is not your own. Are you with me? That's the only way to live it and enjoy it. It sounds like a oh, big burden. It's not a burden. <laughs> because listen, he who seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. But listen, if, if, if my life is bound up in the life of Christ, I'm telling you there's no better way to live. That's it. And why does all this matter? Because in Romans 5, we're told that Jesus didn't suffer so that you wouldn't have to. Let's embrace this reality. Jesus suffered so that now, as we walk a path of suffering, we too can say what Jesus said, not my own. And that will be suffering. Sophie Scholl is a hero of mine. She stood against the idols of nationalism when the church at large in Germany was following the lies of Hitler. She uh, wrote pamphlets with her brother advocating that the German people work, against, work to lose the war. 
She said, if, if you work in a munitions factory, don't put any ammo in the, in the bombs. Make them, not, make them misfire. She said, if you work here, here's how you subvert. Here's how you subvert. And they're, they're distributing these all over Munich. And then one day in the University of Munich, uh, she tosses some into the atrium, this big courtyard. She tosses some, a janitor sees her, grabs her by the wrist, turns her in. She's arrested and within two days publicly tried and beheaded at the age of 23. And you know what she wrote? She wrote, it's such a lovely day. This is in her diary on the day of her execution. It's such a lovely day, I'm sad to go, but I go with a clear conscience knowing that I follow Jesus and the way of the cross. Isn't that powerful? Like, I'm just gonna do the right thing. And if I, if I die at 23, I die at 23. If I live to be 100, I live to be 100. It's not the point. If I pastor a big church, I pastor a big church. If I pastor a tiny church in Concrete, Washington, like my friend does, and it's the same 100 people and has been the same 100 people for 25 years, that's his thing. So I, who cares? Look, the issue isn't what the world defines as success at all. The only thing that matters is, are you in the stream of God's activity? And if God wants you to live to be 110, live to be 110. Have a blast. But we don't write our own story because when we do, it never turns out well. This is the point of the book uh, of Hebrews 11. All these great people of faith, right? And we, we kind of love Hebrews 11 because there's some kind of heroic, kind of male stuff in there about, you know, doing amazing things. Uh, if, I, if I read some of it, what more shall I say? Time will fail me if I tell Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel, by faith, conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, from weakness made strong, mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Yeah, man, I'm in. Here's the problem. It doesn't end there. It says others were tortured not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better re uh, resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Oh yes, and also chains and imprisonment. Stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword. Went about in sheepskin, goatskin, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, holes in the ground. I, I choose door A. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus, I choose door A. Here's the problem, you don't choose. So, like when you say yes, you're believing. I'm speaking as your friend now. When you say yes, this is what you're saying. God, I believe your story is a better story. I don't know what it's gonna be. I don't know, I don't know if it'll lead me to the oncology ward or to waterfront property in Malibu. But frankly, I don't care. Because where I want to be is in God's story. That's Hebrews 11. And, and, and to get there, I promise you this. Even if it's, the, even if it's a waterfront of Malibu, I promise you, all of us have to learn this. It's not mine, it's his. It's not, it's not my marriage, it's Christ. It's not, it's not my kids, they belong to Jesus. Like, I am stewarding this one precious life that God has given me, so are you, I hope. So, so, when we see this suffering in this light, then we're willing to identify with Jesus and that becomes powerful. And so seeing this suffering servant changes our paradigm and then seeing him elevates us. If we go back to Hebrews chapter two, verse 11, we read this. It says, it is a trustworthy, uh, excuse me, it's the wrong text. Never hurts to read First Timothy, but it's just not where we are. For both he who sanctifies, that's God, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one. For which reason, God is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now, so when I see Christ, I'm elevated because Christ calls me a brother. This is really, really important. What it means is, like, you're in my family, because you're in my, because you're in my family, I am unconditionally, irrevocably, 
infinitely committed to you. I'll be, when my son called me at 1 a.m. Monday morning and said, Dad, I'm on a flight to, to Seattle, and the doctors have said, figure out how to tell your, your wife this baby may not live. I'm, that, he's family. <laughs> and I don't care what he's done. That's my son. Are you with me? That's, how, that's God's view of you. That's God's view of you. We're, we're brothers and sisters with Christ. This, this just runs all through the Bible. I can tell you a million stories, but my, one of my favorite ones is, is, uh, is, is the story of Jacob. You guys know this. If you, know, if you don't know the story, just brief synopsis in the Old Testament. Jacob is called, of course, to represent the heart of God because he's the chosen one. Well, what he does is he uh, steals the inheritance essentially from his older brother for a bowl of soup. He's pretty devious. And then dad, is, dad whose favorite is the older brother, is going to bless the older brother. And mom hears about it, and her favorite is, you know, Jacob. And so she dresses Jacob in Esau's clothes, and Jacob doesn't have a lot of testosterone. He shaves once a week kind of thing. And Esau is like, he's got a Hummer and a gun rack and <laughs> chewing tobacco and shaves twice a day, you know. So he's all hairy. So, so uh, you know, Rebecca puts sheep hair on smooth Jacob, on his neck, on his arms, so that when blind dad feels him, he'll be deceived. And then, you know, Esau, who is a hunter, he's out hunting, and, which takes longer. Anybody who hunts in the room knows that. Jacob goes to Costco, buys a bowl of soup, comes, comes back and says, hey, says to, says to dad, right? Hey, it's me, Esau, says to Isaac. Hey, it's me, Esau. Come on, here's your soup, now bless me. And he's blind. But he feels him. And he goes, this is weird. I'm paraphrasing for time. But he goes, this is weird. You feel like Esau. How hairy was that guy? <laughs> right? I mean, wool on his, th- on his arms. You feel like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. And then what does Jacob say? Oh, no. I'm Esau. And then, um, he, you know, he says, yeah, but how did you get the food so fast? And Anyone with half a conscience, at some point, all this lying wears you down, right? And you're like this, okay. Sorry, Dad, gigs up. It was a little joke. I was trying to steal the blessing, you know. (laughs) But no, what does he say? God blessed me. That's how it happened so fast. Then, you know, um, Isaac eats the soup, blesses, blesses Jacob, thinking him to be Esau. Jacob leaves. Esau comes in. A day late, a dollar short, Isaac is like, who are you? I'm Esau. Who was that that I just blessed, thinking it was you? And he now has the blessing. And now Esau's undone. And he's like this, whatever. It's not really a problem because um, I'm Esau. I'm a hunter. Jacob plays the flute in the Long Beach Symphony. And so, you know, I'm I'm gonna kill him. I'll just kill him as soon as dad is dead. And then I'll get the inheritance anyway, right? So that's fine. It's fine. Esau's not even worried about it. Well, Rebecca's worried about it. So she says to Jacob, hey, you got to leave the promised land, which could be its own whole sermon. No time. you got to leave where God wants you to be, watch this, for a few days until this blows over, which becomes, by the way, 25 years out of God's story. So now he's on the run. He's stolen, he's cheated, he's lied. His brother hates him and wants to kill him. How's he doing as God's chosen man, right? C minus? So, you know, he's asleep in the desert and God shows up in a dream. And if I, like, if I could, if I could, if I had time, I'd read it, but I won't. It's in Genesis 28, you read it. God, God shows up, there's this angel and there's, Angels coming up and down the ladder, and then the Lord speaks to Jacob. What does God say to Jacob? I mean, if I'm writing a script, I can tell you what I would have said. Ha. 
uh, you know, uh, this is performance review time, and uh, this is like non-performance, and you've already got a couple things in your file, that, that soup incident, and that, you know, uh, that lying thing, um, I'm done. I, that's the world we live in. I'm done with you. This stuns me. Jacob asleep, and here's God. I will bless you. I will keep you. You will have the inheritance. Look at the stars, Jacob. That's your offspring. You will be a blessing through you. All the, you, the liar, the thief, the cheater, the fearful little flu player, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm gonna bless everyone through you. Do you deserve it? No, but hello, it's never about you. It's about me, my character. Infinitely, irrevocably, unconditionally, for you, Jacob, and you. <laughs> do you believe it? I don't know if you do. I don't know if you do. But man, we must receive God's blessing. Because until we believe that we're called, we're living with the same conditional love that our world has foisted upon us. And, 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 and so, we, before we sin, we, you know, we have this, this problem that we forget who we are. We're in this fog. And in Galatians 5, we're told this, there's this battle going on between the flesh and the spirit. And the battle happens because when we come to faith in Christ, we discover that we have nothing less than the divine life of Christ in us, but our flesh is still there. Read Romans 7. The good I want to do, what? I don't do. The yucky stuff I don't want to do, I do. I try, I fail. I go to retreat, I make a commitment, I fail again. Amen. So, you know, wretched man that I am, what's the problem there? Here's the problem. I begin to believe that I am my flesh. And here's the thing, God has already judged your flesh. God's done with it. Romans 8 is where this is articulated so beautifully and powerfully. Maybe just listen as I read this. Romans 8 says, says the mindset on the flesh, like we all have it, when we're in the flesh, it's death. But the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. There's this peace in me that gets down in the fog and I'm like this, forget it. I've written letters of resignation from my calling more than once. I'm done. And then my wife laughs and you know, tears them up. She, yeah, sure, you could never do that. You're called. And I get mad at her, but that's a different story. So in my flesh, I just want to withdraw. But those who are living in the spirit are living according to the things of the spirit. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace. And as I'm reading this, I'm both encouraged and a little alarmed, right? Because so often I run into the flesh. Are you with me? But then I come to Romans 8 and 9, a favorite verse in the Bible. However, you are not in the flesh. You're not. So, so like when you're living that, you're living in a fundamental contradiction to your truest identity. You're complete in Christ. You're unconditionally loved. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're, you have a calling. You're, you're uniquely gifted to be an expression of Christ in the world. Uh, you're, you're adopted. You're, comp you're given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Do you believe it? Sometimes, probably. And then at other times, it, it flits away. I find that meditating on my identity in Christ is very, very important to me. It's a practice in my life. I'll take one of these truths about who I am in Christ, and today, you know, walking around Hume Lake, just meditating on one particular truth. I'm complete in Christ. Do I feel complete? No, not always. Not today in particular. Am I? Yes. So, uh, if you want to do this at some point, take notes here. If you text to 64600 the word identity, I'll send you a bunch of verses, your identity in Christ. 64600, just text to that number the word identity, and I'll, you'll get 
all these verses. I put, they're printed, they're on my refrigerator, and I look at one every day and meditate on it. It's part of my devotional life. So we need that, right? So we become, as Paul says, rooted and grounded in love. We're going to do a little exercise at the end here. And then here's the last thing you want to see. Seeing him frees us. There's this solidarity I've already addressed at the bottom. Like, because he suffered, when we suffer, he walks with us through the suffering. He knows it. There's solidarity, which enables us then to walk with others when they're suffering. But I want you to see how seeing him uh, frees us. Look at Hebrews 2, verse 11, again. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We share the spiritual DNA of Christ. And as we continue on down, if we go to verse 14, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And here's the liberty, verse 15. He might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So here's the deal. When we come to Christ, we're brought into this eternal kingdom, and because Christ rose from the dead, we now have this confidence that uh, we have, as part of our inheritance, the power of an indestructible life. Will my body waste away? Absolutely. But I will live forever. So will you. And, and, and because of that, we're freed from the fear of death. And it says here that those uh, who fear death are subject to slavery all their lives. So you don't have to be a, you know, technically a slave to be subject to slavery. All you need to do to live a life of slavery is to believe that this life is the only life you have. And if this is the only life you have, then what are we doing here? We should be out amassing experiences of some kind because it's, it's all we have. And then if, we, if we're fortunate enough to amass experiences or uh, for better or worse, material benefits, then we become fearful of losing those benefits. And then we spend a great deal of time and money and energy and anxiety protecting the castle we built. And so now we're living to, you know, amass wealth, amass experiences, and then, you know, protect all we've amassed. And I'm here to tell you, that's not the good life at all. When Jesus said, you know, I've come, John 10, 10, that you might have life, that, I mean, that you might really live, he didn't mean a bigger house. You may have a bigger house, fine, good for you. It's not the point. The point is that you could live free from any fear. Man, would that be good. Christ is able to give us a gift that can never be taken away. It's the gift of union with Christ. His life is united with our life in, this, in a marriage. We're continually receiving from him so that we now... As, as the bride of Christ collectively receiving the seed of his life can be confident, we're going to bear fruit in this world. God's going to write a story of hope through us. That's amazing to me. And it's not because we're worthy or obedient. We're Jacob, man. We're Judah. We're Moses. That's who we are. But God shows us and, and delights in, remember 1 Corinthians 1? Not many mighty, not many strong, not many wise. God shows the foolish of the world and says, through you I'm going to display hope and generosity and wisdom and peace and power. Go do it. That's our calling. So how many are living in fear? I'll tell you. That's the word of the last 19 months. Fear of COVID. Fear of vaccination. Fear of the unvaccinated. Fear of masks. Fear of the unmasked. Fear that we're going to lose our Second Amendment rights. Fear that our children are going to fail in some terrible way. Fear that we're going to lose our health or worse, our health insurance. <laughs> Fear that we're going to lose our position of prominence and power. Fear that we're going to lose our influence. We're like Martha in that story in the Bible. She's trying to hold everything together in the service of Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? Oh, there's only a few things necessary, really only one, and, you know, Mary is doing it. What's she doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus receiving, because without that, you will never be in God's story, ever. So we got to learn here that when we sit and receive this infinite, irrevocable, unconditional love, 
we begin to be, as Colossians says, and Ephesians, we begin to be filled up with all the fullness of God, filled to overflowing. Remember what Jesus said in John 7? Anybody thirsty? I am, by the way. At 5,000 feet, man. What did Jesus say? Is anybody thirsty? John 7, come to me and drink. And then what's the promise? Oh, you're thirsty? I've got, um, what is it here? 900 milliliters. Should get you through for a couple hours anyway. At least till the brownie thing at bingo. <laughs> I mean, if you're thirsty, come, come on. I got a little bit here. But I only have, you know, by now it's down to, you know, uh, 650. And if more than three of you are thirsty, I'm sorry. That's why Jesus, like, hyperbole is so beautiful. Is anyone thirsty? Come to me, and from your belly will burst forth what? Not even, not even living water, and not even a river of living water, but in the plural, rivers of living water pouring out from you. That's where I want to live. But I'll be honest with you, the fog is what makes it hard. When Jason introduced me, he said, you know, Richard started the church of 300 and he didn't want, to, didn't want to be there. And it's a true story. I fought my calling to move to the city. But I did. And I was obedient. And I thought obedience creates results, man. So it's 300 and after a year it had grown to 200. How's that for success? <laughs> And I was like this, what am I doing here? I don't, I, don't like, I don't like the city. I don't like my job. Uh, I want to move. We were doing stuff that we loved. And we left it for what we thought was a calling. We knew it was a calling. But it wasn't, didn't seem to be working. And I'll never forget this one Sunday morning. My neighbors across the street are these quasi- Buddhist pagans, and I mean delightful people, just super, right? You know, vegan, this, and best coffee. They're just, I just enjoyed them. I mean, we talk all the time. Anyway, so it's a Sunday morning. We got a minivan. We got three little kids, like 11, 10, and 5. I'm supposed to be at church at 8.30. It's 8.20. I've got the van going. I've scraped the ice out of the car. No one, no one is uh, in the car but me. And I'm getting really frustrated and, you know, mad. My, and I see, out of the corner of my eye, my neighbor's on the porch, all dressed up all warm in the bathrobe, drinking coffee, reading the Seattle Times. And I remember thinking, I envy you right now. Uh, remember, do you guys ever read Psalm 73? Psalm 73 is where Asaph, it's beautiful. He says, I nearly imploded because of my envy of the wicked. Yeah. He goes, I, how many of you, true story, just raise your hands. This is, we can share in here. We're all men. Like, uh, how many of you ever looked at your pagan neighbors and said, they have it better than me. What's up with that? Anybody in the room? Yeah, I have. Especially David and Margaret. I, I, like, if I wasn't a believer, I would be David. I'd be some weird hippie with a vegan garden and a minivan. I mean, I would be. I'm pretty sure. So anyway, I, I just, I saw David. I was like, oh, man, that's the life on a Sunday morning. What's this thing we're doing? And then, by now it's 823, roll down the window. Get in the car! It's Sunday! I'm the senior pastor! Now! Then, you know, then these 11 and 10 year old come out arguing, crying, you know. Shut up! Get in there! My wife's mad at me for being mad at them, you know. You get in too! Now! And then we're. I, you know, I back the van out, and then I'm driving away, and my windows rolled down, and there's David. He saw the whole thing. He's like this. Give him hell, Richard. You're really fired up this morning. <laughs> and I want to tell you, 
that, I mean, that, that first year in Seattle was, that, that was a hard year and I came this close to quitting. I came this close to quitting. And I, I said to the board, I said, I think you guys chose the wrong guy. And I, I'm out of here. And I love that the, my board, to a person, remember where those guys held up Moses' arms? They said, Richard, we don't care if we're down to 50 people. You're God's man. Wow. You're staying. Wow. Whew. That changed me. I said, okay, I'm in. I'll give you five years. That was 26 years ago. I'll give you five years. <laughs> well, let me, let me finish the story. Because you know what? I mean, I really did... David's a great guy, and I love that couple across the street, and we became good friends, but they, never, they wanted nothing to do with the church. You know, we had good chats about God, and then they divorced. And I stayed friends with David, and, and then uh, we moved in 2015, and then in about 2017, I'm preaching on a Sunday, <laughs> and this this girl comes up and she hands me an envelope with a note in it, you know. And she said, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm in high school. I don't go to the youth group. I just come to the services here. She says, but I wanted to tell you that you've, God's used you to change my life. I came to Christ here, she said. Like, I never knew her at all. And uh, I said, oh, interesting. I said, uh, how'd you end up here? You know, I read her letter and she said, I'm a, I'm a senior in high school and I'm heading off to Eastern Washington to study, so I can't attend anymore. But she said, I, I don't think I've missed a Sunday for two years. I'd come late and sit in the back because I didn't want anybody to know I was here. And I brought a girl with me who was suffering with really severe depression, like she was cutting her wrists kind of depression. And she said, Richard, we came. Uh, she came because you're funny and she just needed to laugh, but she, but she found hope in Christ. And I became a, I became a Christian, uh, so thank you. It was a powerful letter. And so then I said to her, how'd you end up here? She said, you know, it's funny you ask. You know your neighbor, David? He's my uncle. Wow. She, and she said, when my life started falling apart, you know, body image issues and everything that high school girls face when they're 16, she said, I wonder if there's a God. And David said, I know where you need to go. You need to go to Bethany. Richard talks about God. So your neighbor, your pagan, vegan, hippie, Buddhist neighbor, pointed me to Jesus. And why? You know what? I haven't talked with David much about that particular incident. But I'll tell you why. It's because we just keep showing up. We just keep showing up. We know we're Jacob under the veil of perfection and holy answers. We know we have doubt like Moses. We know there's been a, a word of dishonesty like Abraham. We know there's been a, bit of, a little bit of lust like Samson. We know we fall short. We all do. What are we kidding ourselves for? Read to Psalm 103. We all blow it in many ways. But God is unconditionally, infinitely, irrevocably for you. And all he wants you to do is come run into his arms. Amen. And then be begin to believe that he is who God says, that you are who God says you are. That you're complete. That you're loved. That you're forgiven. That you're called. And then with that, God gives you calling. Boom. You have a calling as a dad. Show up. You got a calling as a husband. Show up. Yep. You got a calling in a community of faith. Show up. You got a calling at work. Show up. You got a calling as a neighbor. Show up. Wow, Richard, you're really overwhelming me tonight. <laughs> I just, that's two, that's five things. I'm kind of trying to overwhelm you because the Christian life isn't difficult, it's impossible. But the good news is there's one living in you who can pull it off. Amen. So keep 
showing up. As the band comes up, I'm just going to lead us through a little bit of meditation and prayer about our identity in Christ. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to say something to you, a blessing from the scripture, but a blessing. This is something, if you're in Christ and you guys who came forward last night, this may be new to you, but if you're in Christ, this is true for you. So I'm going to say some things, and then after I say each thing, I want you guys just to respond this way, thank you. Just say thank you. And I may say it more than once, and then if I say more than once, you say thank you more than once. And so we're going to do that. We're just going to have a little bit of time of meditation as we close. And then I'm going to pray for you with your callings, right? That you will show up and show up and show up. Because you show up and there are days you feel like quitting because it's foggy. But the sun is still shining and God is still working. And if when you show up, fruit happens. And that's what God wants. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you are, thank you that you're for us unconditionally, irrevocably, infinitely. Thank you for the scriptures that remind us that nothing can separate us from your love. We want to just, in this moment now, while the band plays, just appropriate the truths of who you have declared us to be so that we can live, as Paul has prayed, rooted and grounded in love. And so as I speak a blessing over you right now, I just invite you uh, to respond with the word thank you. And you guys can go ahead and play, and we'll just do this for a few minutes. You are complete in Christ. You are complete in Christ. You are unconditionally loved. There's nowhere you can go where God isn't already there. You have a new name. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have a calling to bless the world. You have a calling. You have all things pertaining to life and godliness. You have all things pertaining to life and godliness. You are complete in Christ. I've given you a future and a hope. I will work all things together for the good. There is nothing that can separate you from my love. And God, you've given each one of us in this room various callings. And so right now we just receive our calling as dads, many of us are. We just receive it. We want to name it. That's a tough calling. But we will show up. Would you show up through us? Thank you. God will name our calling as husbands. Nothing reveals our selfishness more, at least for me. But we want to show up and, and pray, Father, that you would build intimacy that shines like a light in our neighborhoods. Forgive us when we close the door and do our own thing when our spouses need us. And God, you've given us a calling as neighbors. I mean, the great commands. Love God, love your neighbor. Some of us don't even know our neighbor's names. God, we want to show up as neighbors. And no stories. And laugh together, weep together. And point to you as the great author and source of hope. Forgive us for not showing up. God, uh, we want to show up at work and bring hope in that place. Thank you for that. God, I know just from reading the scriptures, we go all the way back to Adam, the deal with we as men is we blame and we run and we hide. And tonight the good news is there's no need to run and hide because you've declared us whole and you want to wrap us in your arms and love us. So we run to you tonight, Father. And it's okay to be little kids and cry in your arms. 
But then from there, you'll send us out into the world. Strong men bringing hope in the midst of despair, light in the midst of darkness, joy in the midst of sorrow, justice in the midst of oppression, wisdom in the midst of all that is so foolhardy. We express tonight collectively, Lord, our desire to be those kind of men. And thank you that as we show up in the power of the Spirit, you will do in and through us a work that is beyond all that we could ask or hope or even imagine. We're called for it. We're equipped for it. And you're waiting for us to live into it. Take us there now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you guys want to lead in a song, we'll just close with that.